0: You may be seated. If you would turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Thanks for being here today. We think this service is going to grow. About half our church has not even signed up yet. We're the brave ones, Brad. We're the dumb ones. I don't know what we are. So, anyway, I'm glad we're back uh, to meeting. So, I began to sense last week that we ought to uh, take a different direction today today. Uh, We've been walking through John chapter 4, all of our stuff online, and since it's our first time to be back together, I wanted to talk about something that I thought was very relevant, what we've gone through, what we are uh, in. So uh, Isaiah 5, we're going to touch on something there, but we're going to spend all of our time in chapter 6. Strange days, uncertain days that we have uh, stepped through. Isaiah is writing and ministering in very uncertain days. Let me tell you the backdrop of Isaiah 5 before we look at one verse there. So in Isaiah 5, God's dealing with a nation. And he's telling them, uh, I have planted you in a land that would allow you to be fruitful. And he uses the metaphor for, uh, as a vineyard like grapes. And I planted you in a place that you should thrive like and produce really good grapes. But the reality, the way they responded to God in His Word, is that the fruit that was was brought forth, if you were to eat those grapes, you would not enjoy them. They, they would be bitter and they would not um, taste good. And so God is dealing with them based on um, how they have been living in this choice land, in this choice place, as His chosen people. And He mentions in Isaiah 5, five specific things that were sins and that were disgrace and that and that it caused a big part of the problem. And again, this was written 3,000 years ago, and it's amazing how the Bible is so relevant. The first issue God had with them was their incessant uh, preoccupation with materialism. I don't know if that sounds familiar to any place that you live, but but that that is so relevant to um, our culture. The second thing is... Um, They had major, major drunkenness and alcoholism and abuse of alcohol that was dominating Israel in those days. And so God was addressing the addictions that they had with that. The third thing that he deals with in Isaiah 5 is there was a defiant pride that they had toward God to not listen to him or to anyone else. So the fourth thing that he deals with them is is there was a um, perverted morality that had infiltrated the land in regard to, you know, sexual things and all of that kind of stuff, marriage and and all of that. And so God is dealing with them with their perverted morality. And lastly, what was dominating, now the king was was pretty good, but toward the end it was not good. Um, They had really bad spiritual leadership and they had bad... Um, governmental leadership as well. So God addresses these five issues in Isaiah 5. And look with me in verse 24 of Isaiah 5. And all of those five things flowed out of what took place and what he speaks of in verse 24. So he writes, Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, you kind of picture a field there with stubble, it devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame." So, their root will not be as rottenness, so their root will be as rottenness, sorry, and their blossom go up like dust. And here's the reason they had the issues for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. So, all of these things had come about because they had rejected what God had instructed them to do. Now, Moses had told the people when they were going to go in to settle the land in the book of Deuteronomy this is going to go well with you if you will follow the commands of the Lord. Um, it'll be a blessing if you don't follow the commands of the Lord then you're going to have some issues and so they had issues throughout their history so much so that eventually come to the time of Christ they reject their Messiah and so God hardens their heart for the time of the Gentiles where the Gentiles mainly are coming in though if you will read today there is a unique awakening among Jewish people in seeing Christ um, as the Messiah particularly in Israel there's some pretty unique things that are going on there. But for the most part, the Jews just, their history had been to reject things of Jesus. And when you reject God's word and God's instruction to us, hopefully you and I know that, that the natural thing that comes with that is that we become comfortable with the desires and the sins that are around us. And we just think, well, they're not that big a deal and we don't need to worry about them. And that was exactly where Israel was at the time. And so God addresses five issues because they had rejected his word. So let's look now. Isaiah six. We read it a while ago, and I want to deal in the beginning just with the first seven words. And boy, they're exciting. It says this: In the year that King Uzziah died. Cody, excited about that? It's pretty awesome, and just really motivating. This is really important. So, what's significant about the year that King Uzziah died? Well, let me just touch on this. <clears throat> We are living in, I think, some of the most unprecedented, I think the most unprecedented days, unprecedented days in the history of the world, and here's why. There has never been a time where the whole world has shut down and gone inside like it has over the last um, two months. It is continuing in a number of different places here in the States. I know here in Texas things are opening up more, but, but there, are, there are moments in this, particularly about week four, I don't know where you were in week four, where you were like, where I was like, okay, How long is this going to last? And it's overwhelming. You start hearing stories of the loneliness and the devastation that is taking place and people losing their jobs. Living in the days of man can be overwhelming when man is in control of things. And it has always been the case with that. They are full of life, full of death. We are in days of life and death. Uh, We are in days where there, just as Isaiah, there's the rising and falling of kings. And so uh, there's a king in Judah. His name was Uzziah, and he had died. And something happens with this. And so let me tell you a little bit about Uzziah because it sets the stage for what happens as we walk through um, chapter 6. Second Chronicles chapter 26 tells us about Uzziah. He reigned in Judah for 52 years. Most of his reign was a really good reign. And during that time, uh, there was just some really significant good things that he did. So Uzziah was one who... Who uh, had prospered the land, and as a matter of fact, Second uh, Chronicles twenty six five says this: that he began to seek the the God in the days of Zechariah. Zechariah mentored um, Uzziah, and instructed him in the fear of the Lord. And this is what it said about King Uzziah that as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Now, that's always the case. When we walk with God and we seek God, then God will prosper us and God will bless that. One of the things that he did is he fortified the nation where he fought a, a number of um, Israel's enemies and protected the people. Now, at that time, um, Jerusalem had walls all around the city that had not been destroyed yet. About 100 years later, they would be destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar comes in and destroys all the walls and they will remain so until nehemiah returns but all along the walls he had he had gotten some skilled workers throughout the land and they had made some pretty impressive machinery that could shoot arrows and throw rocks to protect the people if anybody came to siege to jerusalem and so it says in second chronicles twenty six fourteen that because of his goodness and because of the the blessing that came because he sought the lord that his fame and honor throughout the land spread everywhere as he was helped and he brought unique people to come along. But toward the end of his reign, one day, and don't know what happened, and I don't know what sometimes it happens in our lives, we have a moment where our brain shuts down and we do something that we would say, boy, I would, I would never do something like that. So God set up to work all the, the things within the tabernacle and the temple God had set up the priest to do all of those things, to do the animal sacrifices, to light the incense, to uh, put out the bread and all this kind of stuff. Well, one day Uzziah decided, you know what, I want to go into the temple and I'm going to go into the temple and I'm going to take the role of the priest and I'm going to light the incense myself. Now, he was a man of war, like David was, and so there was blood on his hand, and so his role, he was not to be consecrated to go in and take that role. And so he decides as king, he's just going to go in, and he's going to become not just a king, but he's going to make himself be priest as well. Well, there was, a, there was a priest named Azariah who saw the king go in, and Azariah said, you can't do this, and the king was like, well, yeah, I am going to do this. And so Azariah goes and gets 80 other priests who were called men of valor. So you have 81 priests dealing with one king, Uzziah, to keep him from doing something that he had not been consecrated for. And the Bible says in 2 Chronicles 26, he's got this stick that you light so that you would reach forward to burn the incense. And he's holding it. It's on fire. He has 81 priests telling him, you're not going to do this. And he's like, oh, yes, I am. And in his anger, as they were holding him back, God strikes Uzziah on his forehead with leprosy. And so the priests see that all of a sudden the forehead of Uzziah is completely full of leprosy, and they realize he's unclean, he's inside the place that's supposed to be consecrated for holiness, and they rush him out. And for the remainder of his days, he never lives in the palace, he never enters the temple again, he lives in a house by himself. And so probably 52-year reign, maybe some, somewhere around year 48, he, he has this moment where he thinks, I'm just going to kind of do what I want to do because I'm king, because I'm successful. And it says in Second Chronicles 26 that in his pride, this is what he did. Now, let me just touch on a few things that I think are important um, today before we see the solution in Isaiah 6 for what we are. We live in a day, if you've noticed a pol- any politicians lately, there's a little bit of pride there in both parties, independent parties, whatever the case is. There's a lot of focus and a lot of arrogance that is usually connected with politicians. And this arrogance translates, not just in our land, but in every land and throughout the history of the world, and opening up for us to think that we are the ones that are in control of things. When God ought to be the one who is in control of things. So this action by Uzziah, he dies. That's what Isaiah 6-1 says. So, so maybe four or five years, he's living in a house by himself. He's not, his son is ruling the land, and he is not doing that. So he finally dies. This success and prosperous reign of Uzziah is now over. And so the kingdom is, has these very uncertain days. We have lived through uncertain days. I mentioned a while ago, for the first time ever in the history of the world, the whole world um, shut down and went inside. And, and it's just been very, very unprecedented. And it's amazing um, what has happened with that. A second thing um, that makes our days that we, you and I are living in uncertain is for Christian people, there's always been a tension between the church and governments. Now, in some particular parts of the world, um, uh, they they are very heavy-handed toward Christians. We have, have had it in this country very well and really still have it very well um, in our day. But I just want to remind us of some things and remind us of this as the people of God. So as all of this um, began, and um, you know, we met as elders to think, okay, so what do we do? Do we keep meeting? Do we not keep meeting? And, uh, and so we understand from Romans chapter 13 that... Um, uh, we are as believers to submit to our civil authorities and our governing authorities, um, because God uses them for our good. Romans thirteen says, and yet at the same time we know that the Scripture doesn't con- contradict itself and it doesn't have doesn't say this in one place and then say something completely different. And the tension is, and uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say this: I think it was right for us for a period of time to not meet think about the most vulnerable but the book of hebrews says this do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together and so how do you deal with obeying government authorities and then the scripture saying hey church you meet and you look out through church history you look at the church and the um during the bubonic plague the church met and church ministered and did things. And so I think these are unprecedented days in regard to how do we do this? What happens in the fall? Well, we'll, we'll worry. Let's don't worry about the fall yet. And, uh, but, but I just, I just want to say to us as Christians and as believers that yes, we honor civil authority, but we honor God's word as well. Another thing I want to say just about these days before we look at the solution. People would, most people would look and say, COVID-19, this is a, a physical warfare that we've been in. Well, Ephesians chapter 6 says that we live in a spiritual war. And so, yes, COVID-19 is physical, it does, but this is a spiritual war. This has always been a spiritual battle. And so even, even in a marriage, if there's conflict in the marriage, it's, it's a spiritual conflict that's there. Um, other things this this is a this is a spiritual battle paul says and not only is this a spiritual battle but since the beginning of time and the fall there has been a working in the world of lawlessness for the first time ever in the history of the world i don't know how much everybody in here has studied the end times but in the very end there's going to become one who rises to power and he is called the antichrist And there will be a one-world government in the very last days of the earth before Jesus returns. And for the first time ever in the history of the world, we are the generation who can see how that happens. Just think about it for a moment. Some crazy pandemic happens, and nobody finds a solution to it, and people are dying left and right. Somebody finds a solution, has powerful people around them to fund what they are doing. It is easy to see how one person could unite the whole world to be ready. Now, I'm not predicting anything this morning, but I'm just saying this. We are the only generation in the history of the world who is aware that the whole world shut down, and we can see now what potentially could happen. Last thing before we deal with the solution. In the midst of all of this uncertainty, let me tell you what is certain. And this is John 5. I don't, I don't want to give an opinion. I want to just share Scripture. John five seventeen. Jesus answered them, My Father is at work, and I am at work. So even in the midst of all of this uncertainty and all of these things that are happening and taking place, let me tell you what's going on. All over these last, we haven't met for eight weeks. In these last two months that we haven't met, guess who's been at work? The Father. Guess who also has been at work? Jesus has been at work. Guess who also has been at work? The Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit's role is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment and to guide us into all truth and to reveal the glory of Jesus. And so, so God has been at work. He's not been silent during these days. I think God has been uniquely speaking in these days and so let's look at the second thing and what i believe is the solution this morning it's in verse one second part of verse one and two so in the year that king uzziah died isaiah says i saw the lord he had a vision and this is what he saw the lord was sitting on a throne he was high and lifted up the train of his robe filled the temple above him verse two stood seraphim angels they had six wings, two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And they called to one another and said, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Let me tell you what the solution is in these days for God's people. People who don't know God, they're not going to see this as a solution. But this is the solution in these days that, it, that have been uncertain, and it's this. We need to be overwhelmed with the vision of the majesty and the glory of Jesus so that's what happens with Isaiah what what was bringing a crisis in Judah didn't bring a crisis in Isaiah's life because he didn't he wasn't focused on a king that had died an earthly king and there's uncertainty about what was going to happen next Isaiah got a vision of a king who never dies and who sits on a throne who lives and reigns forever so let's talk about who Isaiah saw because this is the answer. Isaiah uses the word Adonai. Adonai means sovereign lord, sovereign ruler, one who is in control, the one who is mighty, who has a sovereign absolute lordship, kingly rule. Church this morning. It's well, it's this afternoon now. Gosh, it's this afternoon. By the way, in case you're worried, they have me on a timer. So, anyway, but where do we have to go after all? It's just Mother's Day. Anyway, um, and just kidding. Um, he sees Adonai. Listen, God has never, ever in the history of the world been surprised by anything. He's all-knowing. He's never had to call an emergency meeting to figure out what to do about the world. So in these days, you and I need to have confidence, and so Isaiah sees that an earthly king has died, and in the midst of that, he sees a sovereign heavenly king who is alive. So what does he see? He sees him seated on a throne. What does this mean that he's seated on a throne? It means this, that when God sits on his throne and reigns as the sovereign ruler of the universe, he is unmoved by the things of the earth. He is not panicking. He is not worried by, about anything. He is settled in who he is. He is the sovereign, powerful king, and he is the sovereign, powerful high priest. And as he is seated on the throne, his power has not changed. Listen, he's not weak during these days. I think he's really up to something in these days that I hope becomes something that brings the fruit of awakening in our nation and in the world so Isaiah sees Adonai sovereign lord seated on a settled throne reigning over the earth even though the earthly king and then to the north this guy named Tigreth Pileser he's the leader of the Assyrians he's going to come in and and he's waiting to come in and bring power and then eventually a hundred years from now Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in and with all of this potential fear in all these powerful governments, Isaiah sees a king seated on a throne who cannot be moved. Well, what, what else about this? He is high and lifted up is the next description. And that just means this, his sovereign Lord who sits on a throne that's unmoved, his throne is high and lifted up. It's above all other thrones. There's not a throne that can raise itself above God's throne no one is higher than God and he sits on this throne in the midst of this incredible worship and the worship of God is to be our priority and the reason the worship of God is to be our priority is that worship is the priority of God so we've got to get in touch with the priority of of God and take hold of his value system. And so here's sovereign Adonai seated on a settled throne. His throne is high and lifted up above all thrones. And then Isaiah says, and the train of his robe fills the temple. Now in Isaiah chapter 40, verse excuse me, in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, it says that when God came down that day in the tabernacle, His glory filled the entire tabernacle. So Isaiah has this vision. He sees the heavenly throne, not the earthly tabernacle, and he sees up there, and the whole throne room of heaven is filled with the royal robe of God. So let me talk about what this means for a moment. Um. The ladies that live in my house that are my wife and my daughters like robes. I've never in a hotel put a robe on. I'm not against robes. I just, I don't know, Joe. I just feel weird about wearing a robe, but um, that's just me. Um, God wears a robe. It's a kingly robe, and we've seen kings of the earth, and they've got some pretty impressive robes. Now, way back in the day, this is what kings would do. If you came into a place and you destroyed another people group in an army or another nation, you would go to that king and the kings would do this. They would find that king's robe that they had just captured and they would cut off a strip on the bottom of that king's robe and they would attach it to the conquering king's robe. And so eventually over time, if you conquered a lot of people, the length of your robe was really, really long. And they would walk through the battlefield, the kings would, with this robe on before their men and it would tell their men, we have, we, we have conquered. We are the ones who are the victorious ones. Look what Isaiah says about God. The whole train of his robe filled the temple of God in heaven, which says this. He is the highest victorious one ever. God has never been defeated. God will never be defeated. He is the one who reigns. So Adonai, seated on a settled throne that is high and lifted up above all thrones, And the train of his victory, the train of his power, fills the temple of heaven. If that's not enough, here's the next thing. All around him, he has these angels that are above him. They are called seraphim. And they are there surrounding the throne of God. Now, the word seraphim means this, on fire ones. They are literally, they're angels with... If we were to see them this morning, if God were just to peel back the spiritual curtain and we would see a seraphim this morning, we would wet our pants. I mean, I'm talking overwhelming. They have eyes all over their body. They have six wings. Two, they cover their face. Two, they cover their feet. And with two, they fly in service of the Lord. And so Isaiah sees these burning on fire ones surrounded by Adonai, and they speak out and they call out. And they say to one another, holy, holy, holy. And so these fiery ones are around him and surrounded him. And this is the vision that Isaiah sees in the text. And this vision is meant to remind you and I that God is sovereign, almighty over everything. If He is not, watch, if He is not sovereign over everything, even COVID-19 then here's what our response should be. Panic. We should freak out if God's not sovereign over everything because that means we're sovereign over things and the history of man has shown we do not do good with power and money and influence. It always gets corrupted. Always. And there are some theologians around today, they're called process theologians, and they say this, that God doesn't always know what's going to happen, so therefore God just reacts to things that happen. And that is not biblical, it is not there, and I don't want a God like that, who is not knowing what is going on. And I believe that because He's seated on His throne, this has come to us for a specific Purpose that maybe we don't know every aspect of why it has come to us, but I know this, that he is lifted up, he is in power, he is the victorious one, he is surrounded by angels, and he knows everything. And now one of the seraphim speaks. And as he speaks, it's the third thing this morning, he speaks with this overwhelming voice and affirmation of worship of the glory of God. Look at verse 3. So one called to another and said, so this is just one of them, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say grace, grace, grace. It doesn't say mercy, 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 or love, love, love. It says holy, Holy, holy. Why? They are affirming the transcendent nature of God, that God is other than us. He is not like us. He is righteous in every aspect of who He is. He is the holiest one of all, and it makes Him the most unique one and the most distinct one in everything. And He says this, and the whole earth is full of His glory. There's not a place that you and I could go on the earth today. That he's not aware of what is happening and taking place intimately. And he's not at work in that very place establishing his glory. I've been asking these days, have I been fearful? Um, Was there any aspect of this that I've been fearful of? And I wanted to go to Nepal a couple of weeks ago in spite of all of this. And I didn't get to go because they shut the airlines down. And I'm not super brave. I just know this, that my God is on his throne. That's what I know. I know that he's on his throne and what he does every single time is in line with his holiness. And so this has come to us. It's still with us in 2020 and I know this, that it's passed through his hands to us at this particular time and it's exactly in line with his nature who he is how he works his power and his position so in this moment now Isaiah is like uh uh-oh can you imagine seeing this vision of the majestic God the fiery ones and it says this that when the angels spoke holy 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 the inanimate objects the threshold of heaven they shook at the voice of angels and so isaiah sees this and he looks at himself and that's what he says in verse five he's overwhelmed with the guilt of his personal sin the national sin of god's people and then to make application for us today the global sin of the world and so he says in in verse five woe is me i am lost For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And here's why I know this. I have seen the King who is the Lord of hosts. So he recognizes at the majesty of God that something's wrong with him. He is God's transcendent. Isaiah is not that he's lost. He's a man of unclean lips. And he's just like all the people that he lives among. They have unclean lips as well. And you and I live in a day where worldly pollution is outside of us and worldly pollution is inside of us because of sin. And this prophet of God here recognizes that his and our mouths are dirty and there's no amount of soap and sanitizer or bleach that can fix our heart. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. God alone has the solution. And he's undone, church. Undone. With a vision of God. Can I propose something to us? Well I'm going to whether I can or not. Could the issue be worldwide with the church? Is there's no Isaiah 6-5 moments anymore. We're not undone. At a vision of the majesty of God. And I wonder if in these days. That's one of the things. He's wanting to cultivate to awaken God's people again of how fragile life is and how fragile governments are, how fragile presidents are, how fragile the World Health Organization is, how fragile China is, how fragile Europe is, how fragile United States of America is. And that our great hope is not that we hold our life in our hands but that we are held in his hands. That's our great hope. And Isaiah is just undone. And I wonder, are we undone? Because a vision of God should devastate us when we see who he is. So what's needed? Well, that's the next thing. There's an overwhelming need for God's forgiving work. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim, the burning ones, and I just want you to picture this flew to me it wasn't bad enough to see the how incredible they are burning ones now it's coming toward isaiah having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs for the altar watch this the angel couldn't go over and pick up the burning thing he had to get tongs because it's hot he had to pick it up and he's picked up this burning coal and he's flying to isaiah and verse seven says and he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now I want you to think about Isaiah for a moment. I want you to, want you to picture. You're standing there seeing the sovereign, exalted Adonai. You recognize, Oh no, I am in trouble. I am not like him. He's holy. I'm dirty. I'm contaminated. A burning one goes and gets a burning hot coal, flies to you and comes to you. And notice what Isaiah does there. Hey, wait, angel, social distance. Six feet, please. He doesn't do that. He just welcomes the approaching angel. And he doesn't say, what are you doing? What, that, that's hot. That's going to burn me. Isaiah, watch this, recognizes, I need the work of God to touch me, to fix me, because I'm a man of unclean lips. And he welcomes the work of God, his sin is atoned for, and he's ready for commission. Look at verse 8. God has not even spoken yet. And here's the sixth thing, there's an overwhelming task to say yes to God, to go to a broken world look with me in 8 through 10 and I heard the voice of the Lord saying whom shall I send and who shall go for us and then I said here I am send me verse 9 and he said this is God speaking to Isaiah so Isaiah says okay I'll go I'll go verse 9 and he said okay go and here's what I want you to say to the people keep on hearing but do not understand keep on seeing but do not perceive Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So let's watch this for a second. This is written 100 years before judgment was going to come through Nebuchadnezzar to Judah. They got 100 years to get ready for this. And so God's Father, this is a Trinitarian talking, so who's going to go for us to speak to the people right now? And Isaiah's like, okay, I'm, I'm on board with that. He's been cleansed. Now he's consecrated, and he wants to go. And so he's like, okay, I'll go, because cleansing always precedes significant service for the Lord. And so God says, okay, well, you're going to go, but let me tell you what it's going to be like when you go. Everybody you go to, about 90% of them, are going to have dull hearts and they're not going to be interested in anything you have to say about me. Nothing. Not going to be interested. As a matter of fact, they're going to mock you. They're, and they eventually kill Isaiah. So they're not going to listen to you. They're going to have such heavy ears that they're going to go, oh, my gosh, shut up. Tired of, tired of Isaiah. All you do is talk about this. Heard enough. You're doing this do this, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done hearing what you have to say, Isaiah. And then God says, okay, not only, not only are they going to have dull hearts, not going to be open and receptive, they're going to have ears that are so heavy, they're not going to listen to anything you say, and they're going to have eyes that they're so blind to the truth, you're going to preach really well, and they can't even see it. They can't even see it. And you're going to go, boy, that was a good one today. And they're going to go, I don't have no idea what you were talking about. I can't see it. I can't see it. This is why it's an overwhelming task to say yes to missions and to go. You know why? Because the world's not interested to hear about the Lord. And so Isaiah asks a natural question in verse 11, okay? I've said yes, well how long do I have to do this? Like a month? Do I just have to preach for a month and it's all over and you know they didn't listen for a month or is it just a year? Look at verse 11. So then I said, well, how long, Lord? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant. And houses are without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, sends them away. And he does do that 100 years from now. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. So... How long, God, Isaiah says, how long do you want me to do this? Heart's dull, heavy ears, not open to listening, blind eyes, not able to see the truth. How long? Well, until nobody's left in the land. I want you to do this until there's nobody to tell it to. And you know what Isaiah did? He said, okay, because obedience is greater than non-obedience. And so he says, I will tell the story until nothing is left. Here's the last thing this morning. Kind of dire feeling, isn't it? Can you imagine Isaiah' I a mean, majestic, powerful thing, and now he's supposed to go and and nobody's going to listen to him. but here's the great hope that runs like a thread through the Old Testament and the New Testament and throughout church history. God has always had a remnant of people who have walked with him, and so that's verse thirteen. There's the overwhelming hope today in the midst of COVID-19 of a remnant of the people of God who are going to remain faithful. I haven't said this in the other two services, but I want to say it in this one because y'all are the special people today. I've wondered if this there's not going to be a cleansing of the church in these days where people just aren't going to return and that God's going to purify the church and it, the church may be smaller But it may be more serious in taking and accepting the truth of God's word. Because that's what happened in Isaiah's day. There were all these people who said it. Then trouble came. Death of a king came. And God speaks now. Look at 13. And though a tenth, though there's just 10%, though a tenth remain in the land, a remnant, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth, that's a pistachio tree, or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, and the holy seed is its stump. I want you to picture, I know you've seen it, a forest that's been burned. And those tall trees, eventually during the midst of the fire, what do they do? They fall. What remains? It's a stump. All through that burned forest fire, there are stumps that are there. You know what's inside the stump? the seed for what will grow again. And my hope and prayer in these days is that God's going to awaken His people in the midst of this scourge that is here and it will continue to remain, that there would be a remnant where God would grow the church again in righteousness and purity and power. Again, because you're blessed, I didn't share this with the others. I have time and we'll be finished. Let me give you a picture of what it looks like to be a worshiper in the modern day. This is from a book called Lostness. No, it's called How to Worship the Lord Jesus Christ by Joseph Carroll. He has a story in there, and let me just close with this. It was my privilege to serve in the Australian Army for six years during the long war that began. In September 1939. During that time I met some fine Christians. There were not many but there were some exceptional men of God. The most outstanding by far was a young man named Tom Walton. I was present the night he was converted in an army training camp hut. The chaplain preached a powerful gospel message. And following his appeal to come to Christ. There was the thud, thud, thud of the hobnail boots of a young man coming to the front. I looked up and saw a rosy-cheeked fellow with big horn rimmed glasses making his way forward to surrender all to Christ as Lord. I thought, I wonder if he'll stand. The Australian army was not a place for weaklings, but stand he did. Young Tom was sent as a reinforcement to one of our oldest divisions, which had fought in Africa. Such old soldiers were loath to accept the green reinforcement. But young Tom won their hearts... When he laid his life on the line and was decorated for bravery in his very first engagement with his unit. When he was killed six weeks before the armistice, those hardened veterans wept uncontrollably at his death. They had lost their, quote, Christian, whom they loved dearly. On one occasion, I went to the commanding officers of his his unit, and I requested, as they had recently been in action For a long period, could Tom spend a few days with me? The officer said, listen to this, the officer said, Walton, Walton, who is Walton? He said, oh, you mean Christian. And I said, well, I don't know what you call him, but he is Tom Walton. Well, yes, we call him Christian. Why did they call him Christian? What made Tom so different that the whole battalion knew of him and respected him so highly? Well, the answer is simple. Our young soldier of Jesus Christ had made the worship of his Lord the very first thing in his life. I read his diary after the war. It was not unusual to find statements such as, We attack at dawn. I will be up at four o'clock to worship my Lord. One morning he was absent from parade when his name was called. And the officer said to the sergeant, Where is Walton? He answered, I do not know, sir. Finding Tom, the sergeant said, Walton, Walton, we're on parade. Get on parade. What is the matter, man? So Tom very quickly put on his equipment and made his way to the parade ground. Three or four days later, the same thing happened again. Where is Walton, sergeant? I do not know. Well, go and find him. So the sergeant went to Tom's tent and there was Tom on his knees praying. And the officer said, If this happens again, Walton, we're going to have to parade you before the colonel, and you're going to be in trouble. It did happen again, and this time he was taken up before the colonel, who, of course, had decorated the boy for bravery and knew him well. Three times you have been absent from parade, said the colonel. This is not a good example, Walton, for a corporal. Christian, this is not like you. What's wrong? What's going on in your life? And Tom, in his beautiful, sweet way, said, Well, Colonel, I begin to worship my Lord Jesus, and I can't hear anything. I don't hear the bugle. I don't hear the sound of the men. I don't hear anything. I'm sorry. Tom had reached that rare plateau of lostness in the worship of his Lord, the rattle of equipment, the loud sound of the bugle, the noise of running feet, He was oblivious of it all, and listen to this, and at 19 years of age, he was in action in Borneo when suddenly he was not, for the Lord took him, and he died. I think that's the kind of people like Isaiah that in the midst of days of uncertainty, God is calling us to those days to be that kind of people who love Adonai, seated on a settled throne. Let's pray.